Welcome back to the Line Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander. This is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts in all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind, body, and movement. I am presently recording from a resort in Puerto Rico. Been out here for the last couple weeks, and it's my first time working on set for a film. Presently working with one of the actors in the film. And uh, what an experience. It's like a little tribe or like a music festival. It's like its own planet. People inhabit this place and they get to know each other. And there's politics and relationships. And then everyone just disperses like an entire lifetime wrapped up into a, a month-long period. So anyways, out here in Puerto Rico, anybody gives a dang where we are recording from. And today, I'm excited to bring you a conversation I had with Dr. Wendy Suzuki. I fell in love with Dr. Wendy's research and knowledge when I read her book, Healthy Brain, Happy Life, where she details her personal journey with exercise and how it transformed her life while discussing the underlying neuroscience and the benefits of exercise. Since then, Dr. Wendy has put out a new book, Good Anxiety, where she helps us harness the most misunderstood emotion, anxiety, something we all have, but something most of us don't know how to deal with. She is also a professor of neuroscience and psychology at the New York University Center for Neuroscience and is a popular science communicator for outlets like the Huffington Post, CBS, and more. Before we dive into this episode of the Line Podcast, I first would like to introduce you to one of my favorite nutrition and fitness hacks, is referred to as Inside Tracker. If you are someone who wants to get healthier and has no idea where to begin, and also someone who is ready to take their health and fitness to the next level, but unsure how, listen up. Inside Tracker helps make nutrition and fitness extremely straightforward. All you do is get your blood tested at one of their labs and they give you back a 100% personalized nutrition and fitness plan based on you and your body's needs. For example, my test results gave me a clear picture of what my body looks like on the inside, a clear measure of whether my diet and exercise choices are helping or hurting me, and a clear plan for what I should actually be doing. If you're a tryout inside tracker and finally give your body what it actually needs, you can get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store by heading over to insidetracker.com slash Again, that's 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store when you go to insidetracker.com slash Alright, here we go. Let's get back into the podcast with Dr. Wendy Suzuki. Pow. What was the reason for writing the book? So the drive was originally just looking around and seeing so many students that I teach at NYU, so many colleagues, <laughs> so many friends having anxiety. And this book was started well before the pandemic. And then I looked up how many people say that they experience anxiety. This was, again, before the pandemic. And the answer that I got was 90%. 90% of people even before the pandemic, were raising their hands to say, I experience anxiety sometime during the day. And I thought, first, I can't believe, are you sure that number is right? And yes, it was right. It was a survey done in the United States. And I thought that is something that I not only see every semester as the semester gets further and further, that stress and anxiety level goes up, but is terrible for your brain. And I thought I can speak to this in a unique way. And that's why I started to write the book. And I learned so much. I learned how much anxiety I had. <laughs> the book is called Good Anxiety, the most recent book. Yeah. So what is the differentiation between good anxiety and not good anxiety, which having like a moralistic yeah. judgment on, some, on a topic like anxiety is probably an interesting thing in and of itself. It's that feeling. So bad anxiety, let's start with bad anxiety. That's the kind that you feel that you just want to get rid of, that you want to get out the door. It feels like that anchor around your neck that that uh you know that weight on your chest that is just depleting it's draining and you don't know what to do with it you don't know how to really dissipate it good anxiety uh, a really important point about this book is that i am not saying i'm going to get rid of your anxiety this is the secret sauce to get rid of the anxiety anxiety is there for a reason it is there for protection. So those emotions are part of the human emotional, you know, plan. Um, it's, it's part of our whole array of emotions that we have, and they're there for a reason. What good anxiety allows you to do is take advantage of that protective aspect 
of anxiety that we've evolved over the last 2.5 million years, but gets lost when anxiety levels are just high and constant. Too much of any good thing, too much chocolate is bad, too much, you know, too much exercise to speak to your listeners is not healthy. Too much anxiety is not good. So we need to regulate that, shape it, and kind of put it in its right level so that we can take advantage of all that is good that comes out of anxiety, what it teaches us about ourselves, the knowledge it gives us about what we value, what we don't value. And that is like the core of the definition of good anxiety. I feel like anxiety or or stress, it's been perhaps like vilified. Uh, because maybe yeah. we're, we're constantly just saturated and inundated with this stuff and we're continually stuck on the, on, yeah. on the, the, the gas pedal. And maybe the gas pedal and the brake pedal, they're both stuck on at the same time or you know, whatever the analogy yes, may be. Yes. But the value of it, it's like one of the greatest catalysts for neuroplasticity and, and, and change and cognitive function, yes. and, you know, like activating the body. You know, so if right. you can start to learn exactly. to, I think the stories that we have about ourselves and the things that happen to us or for us or however you see it is also deeply associated to your experience of stress and whether it turns into yeah. anxiety. And so it's like, yeah. but the stories that we tell ourselves around what is stress and what is anxiety, it's interesting that that's kind of, it's almost like a conductor of the felt experience, I think. It is. And I talk about a phenomenon called stress inoculation. And That terminology, everybody should think, yeah, I want stress inoculation. I want to be protected from stress. But the secret there and the core of how you get inoculation and padding or protection from stress is how you go in to the experience. I was literally thinking about it this morning when I did my regular kind of cardio workout. I've been traveling, so sometimes it's hard to do that. And I knew it was going to be hard. I knew I I wasn't going to feel good. I was like, oh, I could do more push-ups last week. And now I'm just, I'm I'm a loser. I'm I'm not. Failure. I'm a loser. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Thank you for that. You're welcome. (laughs) I'm here for you, Wendy. And what? I got, I got through it. And I'm like, yes, I got through it. I'm going to do a harder workout tomorrow. I'm going to get myself back up to that level where I really feel good. And that is that mindset that you go in with of getting through something, even though it's hard, even though part of your mind might be saying, you're a loser because you can't do as many as I know you can do today. You can't do that. If you go through with the attitude that that hardship that you got through, maybe not perfectly, but you got through was helpful, that is a stress inoculation experience. However, if you say, I am just a big loser, I could barely get through that. And now my right hamstring is sore because it always gets sore when I work out and I'm, I'm not feeling my best. That does not help your stress inoculation. So we talk a lot, I've talked a lot about mindset in this book and how we can transform the experiences that we're having from a stress inoculation experience to one that is just stressful and anxiety provoking. Yeah, there's a a quote I saw recently from Krishnamurti. He says, says, my my secret is I don't mind what happens. And so it's, I think it's like when we're in that place of, of, you know, catastrophizing things, or it's just like seeing the whole world as being gray, it's like, it's true. You know, you're, like your perception is is reality to you. I think an interesting place to come from for many things is is to come from a place of compassion and acceptance. So from a place of like seeing this stress of like, oh wow, my body's God, I can feel like norepinephrine and like cortisols and all. Oh, oh, I can feel. It's like your yeah. body works. Like how cool. Yeah. Like you're like you're a functioning biological system that when it undergoes whatever the signal is, like it comes to action. Like what a beautiful symphony yeah. that you're a part of. And yeah. so to come from that place of like, yeah. wow, like I work as opposed to like, wow, I'm broken yes. again and I'm freaking out. Yeah. And so that's so that's I think that that's the interesting. I mean, we could have a whole conversation just around the mindset of stress, you know, so and right. we can exactly. if that's if that's the best direction. But I think that's like that's one prong or realm that I think I'd love to hear more of your perspective on. And then the other comes to more of like the objective aspects of environmental conditions and the way that we breathe and the way that we use our eyes and maybe postural patterns and, you know, maybe like smells in the environment or sounds. And, you know, so there's this objective environmental reality. And then there's our subjective experience with all of that. And when we can get both of those into alignment, then I think that we can come in that place where 
you know, stress really does work for us. Does that sound like some crazy stuff? Exactly. Or do, do you, does that make sense? Do you, do you agree? Oh, yeah, that's absolutely. Oh, good. Uh, I talk a lot about that in the book, and I'd love to jump in on how to think about stress and that stress response that is causing those negative feelings that come with anxiety. And in fact, this is one of the most important premises of the book, and that is evolutionarily, anxiety and the stress response that's underlying it is protective for us. It has a purpose. And so I like to paint the picture of a woman 2.5 million years ago with a sleeping baby collecting berries and suddenly she hears something. And that, that, you know, that anxiety response, what is it? Is it a bear? Is it a bear over there that's about to eat me and my baby? And after two beats of her heartbeat, she realizes, okay, it's like a rodent type thing. It's, it's not a bear. And she can go back down and get relaxed. But that stress response is the same stress response we have today. And what's happening, as you know well, is your heart rate goes up automatically high. Respiration goes up. Blood goes from your digestive and reproductive systems into your muscles so that you can either fight the bear or run away. That is the classic fight or flight response that is the same 2.5 million years ago as it is today. What's the difference? Well, our woman 2.5 million years ago can go back to her relaxing berry picking. The relaxation response kicks in and it's probably going to be a long time before there's a, another possible bear attack. On the other hand, we have a 24-7 news cycle that is reminding us about all of the scary things, both practical and existential, that is happening in our world. And then we go on Instagram and see all the you know beautiful people that we're not one of, and that makes it worse. And that activates our stress response in the same exact way as the woman's stress response is activated with the possible attack of the bear. And so what do we do? We learn how to activate the equal and opposite part of our nervous system, the parasympathetic rest and digest part of the nervous system. And how do we do that? The best way to do that is with deep breathing because parasympathetic nervous system decreases your heart rate, decreases your respiration rate, and brings blood into your digestive and reproductive systems. That's why it's called the rest and digest part of your nervous system. And I don't have conscious control over my heart rate, but I can have conscious control over breath. So whether you're just in the uh, starting an anxiety episode, or you're maybe right in the middle, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Deep breathing is the best way to activate that part of the nervous system that has also been here with us for 2.5 million years that naturally calms us, that naturally brings down that heart rate. We do that by deep breathing. So I talk a lot about that. That is the core value. We've talked on this podcast and in my book and social media in general, there's been like a lot and just in the world outside of this channel. I think people get that your breath is associated to the way that you feel your felt state. Was there anything that surprised you in going into the, the research around stress, you know, like environmental conditions or maybe like, I don't know, smells or was there something that stood out as like, oh, I, going into writing this book about stress, I kind of felt this way. And then as I went mm -hmm. through it or at the end, like, was there anything that, that shifted or surprised you during your, your research in the topic of stress? Yeah, that is a great question. And there is something that was the most surprising thing that came at me as I was writing this book. And that thing was, I found myself making friends with my own anxiety. That is, I found myself kind of with a new appreciation of the value of those negative emotions, fear, worry, anger. And before it was like, oh, let's just, uh, you're, you're worrying again, you know, what's the matter with you? Um, but instead, what I ended up finding myself doing and writing about in the book is asking myself, what is that emotion telling me about the situation, telling me about myself and thinking, this is not what I want to throw out the door that you don't deserve to be thrown out the door. You deserve to be embraced. This is actually like a self-help uh, kind of information. And I'd never thought about my worries or my anxieties. I was like many people, I had a lot of shame around. I was an anxiety denier. I like to be, I'm the, I'm the happy one. I'm the, you know, energetic, happy professor and I don't have anxiety. 
Well, that's a lie. I have I have plenty of anxiety. That's why this instinct that I had in writing the book is like, yeah, you have to make friends with your anxiety. It is there to teach you something. It's not like a soft and cuddly friend. It's like a prickly friend, but a useful friend. That's the most that's the most surprising thing that I I learned when I wrote this book. You probably have had experiences before. Maybe like running would be an example that most people have probably experienced. Like that the runner's high. Going into yeah. you know, you run for the first 15, 20 minutes or something, and you're like, Oh my god, this this sucks, this hurts. I feel <laughs> stiff. Yeah, I've you had know, that I feel like I'm like I'm winded. I'm like stressed out. Like, I don't like that. I'm just stressed yeah. out. And then all of a sudden, there's this switch that can happen where all of a sudden it's like, oh, like I'm just like floating. And I think that so yeah. often, you know, like the Rumi quote, like like the cure for the pain is in the pain. Like so often, by just mm. going headfirst into the discomfort, on the other side lies like the treasure and. Then there's the differentiation of at what point am I actually hurting myself and there's no treasure on the other side of this, just a surgery. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. that's I think that's an interesting dance to have that self-awareness to be like, oh, no, no, like I know this this feeling. You know, this sim- similar thing happens with yeah. holding your breath. If you hold your breath for, you know, maybe mm-hmm. a minute or something like that, you'll start getting these pangs and contractions and indications of, of stress. Your body starts getting stressed out, says I need air. But it doesn't need air. Right. There's like starting to be this this buildup of CO2 and like your oxygen saturation mm-hmm. is totally good. And what can happen if you do start to be able to relax yourself in that stressed out state is the same thing. On the other side of that is this like euphoric like, ah. So like what, do yeah. you have any sense yeah. of what that bridge is exactly from, yeah. from freak out stress to euphoria? I mean, most people are probably experiencing some capacity. Yes, I do. And this really comes from the research I did in my lab and for my first book, Healthy Brain, Happy Life, looking at the effects of physical activity on the brain. And so what I like to say is, and this applies to both just getting up and moving when you, when you just need a break and, and, you know, start to feel anxiety or when you are kind of working through, uh, getting past that barrier of the first sometimes five minutes for me of running is like, oh, I don't like this. You know, what, when, when is it going to end? And we know that those positive affect feelings the effects in runner's high of euphoria, but also just the positive mood state that can come from walking when you haven't walked, you've been sitting in front of your computer on a Zoom meeting for the last five hours. That comes from the neurochemicals that get released in your brain with physical activity. So we know that with physical activity, including just walking, It's like giving your brain a bubble bath of neurochemicals that we know are mood boosting and anxiety and depression decreasing. Those neurochemicals include serotonin, noradrenaline, dopamine, endorphins. And that is that bubble bath that is shifting your mood. And the bubble bath can get shifted with your physical activity state. So a marathon runner will have trained their kind of neurochemicals in a different way than somebody that's just started. But that is the positive mood state. That is the basis of the positive mood state that you are feeling with movement in your body. I've experienced this. One kind of novel thing I did that I think is, I highly recommend, I'd like to do one again at some point is is a Vipassana. So you sit and essentially just like meditate for 10 days and you Mm -hmm. you sleep at a place and they wake you up at like 4.30 in the morning and you go and you meditate for an hour with a bunch of people and then you take yeah, a walk and then you meditate for an hour with a bunch. you just literally just do that all day and so yeah. there's like very minimal movement your movement is just taking a walk literally like don't even do yoga just like sit meditate take walks nap sit meditate that's it and i've experienced and lots of other people probably experience if, if, if they've ever tried to meditate beyond maybe say like 25 30 minutes that sensation mm-hmm. feels like my hip is going to explode it's on fire this back thing you know and that's stress like that's what that is is, is your your body's signaling you saying you you got to get the heck out of this room you got to you got to move your body to relieve yourself of this stress there's a predator here move and yeah that same situation can happen from the absence of movement which is interesting. And a similar sensation can happen from panicked states that people have experience with like psychedelics is a very obvious one when you go through like a bad trip in quotations, you could be sitting there mm. in a complete curied panic, stressed out as you beyond what you ever thought was possible. And then all of a sudden you surrender into that stressed state on the other side is that treasure and that release and that euphoria and all this, you know, all the sensations. So what about when it's absent of movement? 
Yeah, that's great. So in my research lab at New York University, I've studied both the effects of physical activity on the brain, but also the effects of meditation on the brain. And um, it is interesting that there are overlapping outcomes from these two very different kinds of activities, as you've beautifully pointed out. One has lots of movement and use of muscles, and the other one, you're, you're trying to be very, very still, and it's a mind exercise. Well, um, we know much more about the neurobiology and the molecular biology of the effects of exercise on the brain that I summarize with this idea of a bubble bath. That's not particularly uh, scientific, but it, it does convey the idea that that's happening. And I think it's encouraging for people, you know, give your brain a bubble bath, just go for a walk. But for meditation, we know a little bit less about the underlying neurobiology. But what we do know is a lot about the changes in electrical activity that come with regular meditation practice. And there is an enhancement in, in a particular waveform called the gamma waveform that is kind of goes off the charts when you have 10,000 hours of meditation under your belt. And every one of us can get one little step closer to that, that leads to that same kind of calm, that same kind of euphoric. I wouldn't be surprised if there were similar changes in neurochemicals, probably not identical, but there are clear brain effects of meditation. And again, the outcome can be similar. Decrease in anxiety and stress, increase in positive mood states, like the kind of euphoria that you can get in a deep meditation. Can you just define what the stress state is, like a la Hans Selye, like initially starting to map out what stress is in the body? What is like the cascade of I'm sitting here, all of a sudden I see a lion, which is like the, at this point the overused cliche analogy. I apologize for even saying that. What happens in one's physiology as that's happening? Physiologically, stress or any kind of threat, a real threat or even an imagined threat activates a part of the nervous system called the sympathetic nervous system. Again, this is the ancient nervous system that was designed to protect us. And it goes through a number of different steps. So the immediate kind of reflex is it gets you ready to move and either fight or run away. Hence the name fight or flight system. What do you have to do to either fight or run away? You need blood in your muscles. So your heart rate goes up, your respiration rate goes up, and this part of the nervous system shunts blood from your internal organs, from your digestive and reproductive systems into your muscles so that they have all the oxygen and energy they need to work really hard, really fast. The other thing that happens is that there is activation of a brain area called the amygdala, critical for detection of threat. My, my colleague at New York University, Joe Ledoux, has studied that beautifully over the years. And that also kind of re-stimulate the release of cortisol, the stress hormone that can help your muscles work better, but also can uh, activate your brain function in a, in a short-term way. The reason I'm asking is would like to venture in how our postural patterns can inform the production of our endocrinology. And so like a famous cycle maybe is, is not the best word, but like the, going through the, the HPA access and the hypothalamus yeah. to the anterior pituitary gland to the, to the adrenal cortex and the, the eventually leading to the release of these, these, these stress hormones. But these are glands and are like they're physical places, you know, it's a physical yeah. organ. And I question if there can be postural stressors or like impingement in and around those areas or, or compression in and around those areas that could kind of like could affect that cycle. And things like massage or things like changing one's, one's facial expressions or their postural patterns. Maybe a person's kind of stuck in that forward head posture and rolled forward shoulders and hyperkyphosis and kind of like this defensive, this archetypal defensive position. Does that have an actual objective effect on the function of the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland and the adrenals and such? Or do they kind of exist in a vacuum and movement and kind of like the their physical state from a postural perspective is kind of separate. 
I mean, my feeling, my strong feeling is it's not at all. But essentially, what I'm saying is, does our, our our postural patterns affect the function of these glands that are at least in part responsible for our stress state? So the answer is there isn't a direct kind of pushing of my shoulders are back, therefore I have you know some sort of uh, physical response on my hypothalamus. The hypothalamus is one of the most protected brain structures in the brain. It's right in the middle of the head. There's nothing that we are doing physically really gets at it from a physical point of view. We're not manipulating it. Cranial bones are fluid. They're, they're, they, they move. You know, so if you have, say, malocclusion of the mouth or say you have some type of upper palate stuff or say you have maybe you got maybe you broke your face, you got in an accident, you broke cranial bones like I question the belief of, of how impermeable to our, our structural patterns those places are because we're a pressure system as well. Because of the location that I know that the hypothalamus sits in, it is one of the least permeable to, to physical manipulation. That doesn't mean that that movement or postural patterns cannot affect it because it has huge interconnections with structures that are monitoring how we feel the brain-body connection. And yes, there are different postural movements, the you know open chest, the head up, that put us in a different mood that will affect the amygdala, that will then project directly to the hypothalamus. And conversely, as you're saying, you know, balled up in a ball, like you're you know protective of yourself, will also put you in a different psychological state that can have a physiological uh, effect on the hypothalamus. I would say of the two. I wouldn't bet on some sort of manipulation, physical manipulation. However, you don't need to worry about that. There's enough connections and responsiveness of the brain and affective structures to our body and our our posture and whether we're moving in space in a particular way, that there's a lot of responsivity in the hypothalamus to that. Did you know unhauled hemp seeds contain the perfect ratio of omega-3s and omega-6s, helping to reduce inflammation and increase weight loss? But you don't just want to buy any hemp seed. Whether it's unhauled or not, it's extremely important for it to be USDA certified organic. Hemp is a phytoremediation plant, so it sucks up whatever is in the soil that it's grown in. This includes the good and the bad. Eaton Hemp is proudly USDA organic and third-party lab tested, so you can rest assured it is grown in the finest soil, free of toxins, pesticides, and heavy metals, which I am very excited about. Grab your own bag now by heading over to eatonhemp.com align. That's E-A-T-O-N-H-E-M-P dot com slash align. And use the code align, A-L-I-G-N, for 20% off. Again, that's eatonhemp.com slash align. E-A-T-O-N-H-E-M-P dot com slash align. Use align code for 20% off. Plus, if you do not like your product, they give you a 30-day money-back guarantee. Um, I know you guys will love this stuff. I am a huge fan of hemp, and um, I use it. It's one of my favorite protein supplements. I use it. I love it for salads. I love it for smoothies, and um, it's just a, a really excellent source of nutrition. I actually brought some Eaton hemp with me here to Puerto Rico, and I think you guys will dig it. I would also like to thank Bio Optimizers. If you're interested in health and wellness at all, probably know the importance of keeping your blood sugar down. This is why so many people go on the keto diet in the first place or in intermittent fast or drastically reduce their carbs throughout the day in order to keep their blood sugar in check. But for most of us, these diets aren't realistic for us to maintain in our everyday lives, nor are they enjoyable. So for those times when you're going to eat the bagel or piece of pizza or late night snacks or whatever carb heavy food that may be, you can avoid spiking your blood sugar bio-optimizers blood sugar breakthrough. It works to safely lower blood sugar after meals so you can maintain a healthy weight and redirect carbs to your muscles where they can be burned for energy. This means you'll avoid the worst effect of high blood sugar like weight gain while enjoying more stable energy, mental clarity, and fewer cravings. I love this stuff. I think you guys as well as well for an exclusive offer for my listeners just go to bloodsugarbreakthrough.health slash align and save 10% by using align 10 then you can try yourself some blood sugar breakthrough so you can either use align 10 code or you can go to bloodsugarbreakthrough.com 
health/line. Both of them will give you 10% off. If you are not completely satisfied with the results of this product, send it back and they'll give you your money back 100% guarantee. I think you guys are going to dig it, especially if you like eating late night snacks like I tend to. I'm sure you're familiar with like the Amy Cuddy research and like the superwoman pose. You're familiar with that stuff from mm-hmm. Harvard. Uh, so yes, I wonder what your yeah. thoughts on, on the, the, the general, I guess that would be called maybe like a psychophysiological response of, of movement and, and facial affect. And, you know, you, I'm, you're probably also familiar with like the, the study where they had people put a pencil in their teeth. So they're smiling or like a forced smile yeah. and they start perceiving things as funnier mm-hmm. or like you know, happier and you put a golf tee right. in their brow and makes them frown and they perceive they they become more, you know, bitchy. What do you, do you think that that's the contention around some of that research is relevant that it's like, oh no, it's, you know, it's hard to reproduce. Or do you think that that's like, you change your face, you change your mood. It's just, is there like a math to that? Or do you, how do you feel about that? So I feel like that research is still young And it's not like, oh, you can't reproduce it. We just need more time to do it. Unfortunately, science tends to be slow. And if there's not a hundred other labs that want to study the smile effect, then, then it takes a long time. And people should be skeptical about the effect of one single study. But do I believe it? Do I think that there are effects, effects of our facial expressions and, and body postures on, on our brain and on the way the brain works? Yes, I do. But I still think that there needs to be more confirmatory work in these areas. There's just not enough labs around the world that are working on this particular problem. The area that is related to this that has more work is the area of mindset and the power of mindset to change our physiology. And this is the work of Aliyah Crum at Stanford, the psychology uh, professor there. She doesn't do Wonder Woman pose, but she looks at the difference of somebody receiving anesthesia, for example. And if somebody in a white coat comes in and administers the anesthesia in a very careful way and they have a white coat and they, you know, a lot of authority, you get more pain relief than if you just, you know, automatically beep, 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 it it goes in automatically. Same exact dose. The other one that I love is if you tell hotel workers that in fact, the Surgeon General has determined that their level of physical activity and cleaning the floors and cleaning the tub and changing the bed is actually higher than the average. And they're getting a good workout when they believed before they weren't compared to workers that were not told that they come back three weeks later, losing more weight, being more satisfied in their job. And another way to get around mindset. I mean, do you believe if that posture is making you feel better. And it's really hard to feel unpowerful when you're in the super, super woman pose, for example, then you can apply that there. But I'm not going to attribute work that hasn't been done, but I'm just citing the work that has a lot of research behind it, um, which is the the mindset work. Yeah, that was Ellen Langer did the hotel thing. I've had her on the, the podcast as well. The other one that she did was really interesting was one of her books is, is called Counterclockwise. And it's about she took a couple different groups of people and the one group she put created their older folks in like their 70s or 80s. And she created this hotel area where essentially like they housed them for some time. I don't remember the specific details, but they changed everything. So it was like 20 years ago. So they changed the newspapers, they changed the TV, the sports games, the president, like all this different stuff. And they're like, cool, like just play house essentially. But like 20 years ago, be method actors. And what mm. they found was it's their fingers got longer and their vision got better so like osteoarthritis started to 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 diminish and their cells change shape just through their Mm. perspective and their mindset it's so interesting thinking of how much of our lives like we're all method actors and our belief system informs the way that we show up in the world the way we show up in relationship and business and in our in our postural patterns and our thoughts and to to start to knock on the door of awareness that you have control of this theater that you're in and you're not just cool like the you know the director said this is your part this is your part it's like you can you might have Mm -hmm. this part but you can play the part really any way that you want and that sounds like some maybe some new age metaphysical stuff but there's research to back it up and it's like well it's crazy i mean it (laughs) used to be called new age metaphysical stuff and now psychologists do call it mindset 
And yeah. there is a very systematic way to be able to study that. And you just described one of the really powerful studies. And I talk about mindset a lot in the book as you deal with anxiety and trying to shift your bad anxiety to good anxiety. And that mindset that you're coming in with, I mean, that's why this insight that I, I found myself making friends with my anxiety may seem like really surprising. My anxiety is not my friend. Well, actually it is. And if you lean into it and try and understand what comes from some of those negative emotions, that is uh, that was one of my most powerful mindset shifts that allows me to deal with anxiety every single day. So yes, I think that that's applicable to so many parts of our lives. I feel like bad and good, those are like, you know, moralistic words and it's all perceptive and subjective and there's no, no bad and good truly exists, I think. And so it's like bad to be, it's based off of one's relationship with the experience or negative is the same thing. Yeah. Unless you're like negative mm-hmm. for like a, you know, a, an STD test or something. It's like, okay, it's negative. It's like, it's not, that's a different thing. <laughs> but like, like negative stress or negative, it's like, okay, that's just your story around it. But what can be almost borderline objectively bad and negative would be chronic stress. Like there's very, very, very few subjective experiences that, you know, adrenal fatigue or just this chronic sensation of I can't sleep and I just like, ah, I'm like always raging inside. And I, you know, I'm not able to come into that, that restful place of feeling safe and feeling supported and feeling like I can just like finally like exhale. Oh, oh. You know, if you're in that yeah. state for too long, then it's it's very destructive. You know, so that's that's the big thing is is being able to get the reins on yourself enough to be able to start exactly. to come in control of like, man, this chronic state is hard to get out of because you might have been chronically yeah. away for 20 years or 30 years or right. you know one year. That's like the big show is getting into like the chronic stress place. Exactly, that is the big. Uh, um, uh, the big task. And that is why in this book, Good Anxiety, what I've tried to do is be very, very practical. There's science in there so I can explain why I'm suggesting these things. But on a practical note, the whole last part of the book is a whole list of tools. It's a toolbox that you can use that gives you immediate things to decrease your anxiety, medium-term things to decrease your anxiety, and long-term practices. Mindset is not like, okay, I'm going to change my mindset now. There you go. I'm, I'm now, I understand what good anxiety is. Yeah. It takes a little bit of practice to go through what that is. And it's to take advantage of and start to appreciate the value of these negative emotions. You can't be in that chronic state, chronic stress and anxiety state. You need to use the tools to regulate that, put it into that zone that anxiety can be more protective for you. And then you can start to take advantage of what I describe in the book as the gifts that come with anxiety. But before I come to the gifts, let me explain something. Uh, One of the tools, one of my favorite tools, because you suggested the effects of olfactory cues, you you mentioned something that you're interested in. And one of the tools that I give to decrease anxiety is a practice called joy conditioning. So joy conditioning is a direct way to counteract fear conditioning that happens automatically. So you have something really bad happen, you get mugged on a particular street. Well, fear conditioning works to remind you of that every time you go to that street, it could be a dangerous spot so that you get those feelings of fear and oh my God, I'm gonna get mugged again on this, on this this at this spot. That is part of our defense system. Well, what can we do? What if I have too many of those kind of fear conditioning automatic things? Well, that's where joy conditioning comes in. And so joy conditioning works is uh, you go back through your own life memories and think about the most joyous, the happiest, the funniest, the most juicy memories that you can come up with and find one with an odor that you can reproduce, like a a positive odor that, that comes with it. The one I use is a yoga class memory where I still remember I did so well in this yoga class. I was really flexible that day. I just did great. And then at the end of the class, I was doing the pose that I do the best of all the poses. I was doing Shavasana and my (laughs) eyes were closed and feeling really good. And the instructor came by. So feeling really good. Instructor come by. She waves her hand with a lavender lotion under my nose. So I get this whiff of lavender. And then she gave me the most luscious five second neck massage that I didn't expect. 
And so how do I use that? Well, I bring that memory up when I need that feeling of, I just got an extra special burst of neck massage when I didn't even expect it. I literally go around with a vial of lavender essence and I smell that and it brings that memory back. Every time I bring that memory back, I consolidate it even more and I revisit those wonderful emotions. And so everybody can do that using mining the uh, a wonderful uh, array of wonderful memories that you have and um, help counteract fear conditioning. In your yeah, life. I love that. And NLP speak, it's, it's called anchoring. You're anchoring that olfactory system into every time I smell that lavender, it takes me back into that place. And you can exactly. do that in, with anything like music is a great way to, to do it as well. Like getting, that's why ceremony is so important. You know, if you get into some yeah. intentional, mm-hmm. cool, every time I, whatever my thing is, I, before I do a podcast or public speaking thing or work out, you know, you have your set, the smells and the sounds, and then you can leverage that as a tool. Like literally, like you put it in your satchel, little toolkit, you can go to a new place, new country, whatever. And you snap back into that state. It's like you've you've neurologically tied those 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 senses back into that that felt state. I wonder something I learned about recently that I don't really fully understand is, and I think it's interesting. The idea of one, we're like always looking for threat, you know, and 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 you know, the, I'm I'm trying to to grasp the reticular activating system, the RAS. That seems like a popular topic of conversation. I mean, I guess in, in maybe in like a small little world that I'm paying attention to. And that idea of like a person gets, you know, if you get a new yellow car, all of a sudden you see everybody with that, that same car. You're like, wow, everybody has this car, you know, and it's like our brains and our perceptions, we have our own way of kind of gathering information and it's biased based off of our belief systems and our stories and like what we're paying attention to. And so I'm trying to understand how that works from like a neurological level, because I think that is, it's, it's quite interesting you know having like a an actual definition for how that works of how we kind of choose what we look for you know our bias is what pulls information in from the world there's like the whole array the whole palette of everything that's in the world and then we selectively take in you know that one percent based off of our bias it's like what you're describing with maybe you could have like more of a joy bias but i think the tendency is to come from more of that like fear bias because that's you know, the ante's higher. Somebody's going to kill me or my family. I need to pay extra special attention to that. But you can start to, to tune that. Yeah, you can start to tune that. And you can be aware that we all have a negativity bias. I talk about in the book, in committee meetings, when we're trying to evaluate, you start to become aware that you have to be very careful about what you say, because your negative comment will carry much more weight than the positive comment that you make. So if you're trying to be completely, you know, unbiased and give both the positives and negatives, well, you might end up inadvertently giving everybody else the impression that this is really a negative candidate when you thought it was a positive candidate. And it is because we are all having this negative negativity bias. And um, it is something that we need to be aware of and to use tools to to counteract it like, like joy conditioning. So how does a person start to incline themselves to more of like a joy bias or a, a positive bias? Or is that just evolutionarily not sensible? You're never going to get away from that instinct. Your stress system is always going to get its hackles up when there is a potential threat. If it looks like there's a spider over there, you know, or, you know, or <laughs> there's a rat over there. I'm from New York. So that's, that's the dangers that I come, come across on the streets. And so I do think that because our threat detection, our stress systems are so automatic, there's no danger in trying to strengthen our positivity sensors in our life. And joy conditioning is one of them. It uses our own memory systems. And you think about, you know, I've studied memory for the last 25 years. That that was my specialty in neuroscience. And we know we remember the happiest and the saddest events of our lives because those events imbued with emotional resonance get remembered most. So I have my happy and sad memories. If I recall consciously the happy memories more, I will automatically start to strengthen those and not think so much about about the negative uh, memories because I'm reminded of them in, in many other ways. 
So that's just one simple way that you can do it. And what I'm trying to say is that I don't think there's any danger. You're not going to suddenly put yourself as at a evolutionary disadvantage if you start doing that. I think memory is like one of the most interesting conversations ever. And PTSD, you know, maybe like deeply imprinted memories, maybe not even PTSD, but deeply imprinted or, or also maybe PTSD, but deeply imprinted memories that are kind of like unshakable, you know, and it's like they, they maybe lay dormant for a while and then they, they come up and that subconscious implicit mind, the elephant that's kind of like running the show, to be able to start to massage into that is, is, is like invaluable, you know, to, to be able to create meaningful change in one's life, I think. But most of us are in, you know, that declarative memory, that, that space of words. Mm-hmm. And it's like, we, and we were educated that way in school. You know, we didn't have a lot of like deep yeah. implicit awareness in school. Most of our education is, you know, rem- remember these facts past that scantron. You need to know this date and that date. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting where I think we almost have almost like a handicap in a way to be able to access those parts based off of the way that, you know, like Western education is. No no hit on Western education, mm-hmm. but I think that, that perhaps could affect that. How does one start to engage a deeper relationship into that, those implicit memories and like that deeper subconscious self to be able to create change yeah. from your perspective? Yeah, well, I think that's a really interesting thought. And it comes back to a concept in the book of leaning in to your anxieties and those negative negative emotions. Um, and, and this is a great thought to end our conversation on, which is one of the promises of the book is that when you get your anxiety under control, you use all the tools to regulate it and you start to lean in and learn from it. What comes out are some wonderful gifts or superpowers, which again, people are like, what? I have a superpower that comes from that, but it relates to exactly what you're talking about. Why? Because some of our anxieties have been with us for a very, very, very long time. And I talk about in the book, a lot of my own anxieties. And while it's a little bit hard to appreciate that right now, I've had a long-term social anxiety. It was a very shy child. Mm. I was never in the in-group in, in any of my schools and always wanted to be. I was always the wallflower. I had a hard time asking questions for a long time in class because it was just very fearful for me. And that is a long-term anxiety. So what did I learn from it? I learned that it's social interaction is something that I've always wanted more of in my life. And I came face-to-face with this when I was really at a low point trying to get tenure at NYU. And all I did was isolate myself all alone. It's like, I'm good at being alone. I'm just going to work hard. And I realized to help myself, I had to reach out. This has become a superpower because as a teacher, I realize unconsciously that what I tend to do is not just enjoy the students that say, pick me, pick me, pick me. You know, I I know the answer, but I know there's so many students out there that want to engage with me and tell me about what they know about the topic, but are too shy. And I knew that about myself. So I always spend the time and get to class 15 minutes early, talk to students informally, stay there late and really have empathy for these students. And so that becomes the gift or the superpower that came from one of my longest lasting and longest enduring anxieties, which is social anxiety. And so everybody has that. What is that empathy that you can bring from your anxiety? Do you have an awareness of where that the social anxiety came from? Do you think there was like a fear of failure or something of the sort? Or what, what was the, the reason that you didn't want to be seen in those ways? Or you were afraid to be seen in those ways? Yeah, sure. It was a lot of it fear of failure of, okay, the cool kids aren't going to like me. And so it's fearful to get engaged in that way, which is a terrible way to approach it in the first place. But, you know, there's been learning over, over the years and also fear of, and, you know, I talk a lot to students and college students, Fear of looking like an idiot in front of the whole class is something that we all are fearful of, including including the professor. And that goes behind not wanting to engage in class when you know that that's going to help you learn the material more. We talk a lot about that in my in my neuroscience classes as a way to make the neurobiology of our understanding of anxiety and stress much more meaningful and useful for your everyday life. Do you feel like you've gained a relationship with that sensation? I don't think overcome is the best term, but do you feel like you're like at peace with with, this, with with that? That That's a great question. And the answer is 
that that is one of the revelations of making friends with this. I hated, I hated that fear of not feeling like I was social enough and I had enough friends. And now it's like, you know, it's given me a new insight. It's taught me how much I value that. And it's inspired me to find ways to have a, a much bigger social network. And that has taken a long time. It's a long time coming, but that was the insight that I got and it's enhanced my life. And that's the whole kind of core of good anxiety. That is, if you lean in to understanding your anxiety, regulating it, understanding it, learning from it, then it leads you to a more fulfilling, creative, and less stressful life. And that's what I found from using all the tools in the book. I think it gives you a superpower of compassion for people that are experiencing similar things. Whereas if you never had that, then you'd never be able to have that sensitivity and empathy for other people because you've never really been there. So you're almost like, it's almost like a handicap to not experience some type of deep discomfort like that. So coming from that place, it's like the wounded healer. By having yes, going through exactly. those trials and tribulations, it opens up your capacity up to be a more gifted support to the tribe because you've you've experienced. So there's another. You know, it's all stories. You could also look at it as like, oh, yeah. fuck, I wasted all of my life. I, I didn't. You know, it's like that. Like that's a fine story too. But really, it's just like pick a story that works best for you. Run with it. Well, thank you so much for making time to have this conversation. My pleasure. People should grab your most recent book. Where 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 do people go? So you could find Good Anxiety, Harnessing the Power of the Most Misunderstood Emotion on simonandschuster.com, all the big sites, amazon.com, Apple Books, Barnes and Noble. I also recorded the audiobooks. I read every single word of this 260 pages. And so that's always fun because it's very satisfying to be able to actually read, read out loud these things. And um, it's going to go on sale September 7th, 2021 and available at all your favorite book and audiobook sites. And you, it's up for pre, pre-order now, I'd imagine. It's, a, it's up for pre-order now. So love if you could uh, pre-order. And I'll also say that if you want to get more interactive and do some self-experimentation on your own self to test the effects of various interventions on your own anxiety, go to wendysuzuki.com or goodanxiety.com and you can participate in the Good Anxiety Citizen Science Project. Thank you, Wendy. Okay, thank you, Aaron. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. It is such an honor and pleasure to bring people to you that have immersed themselves in a specific topic, in this case, neuroscience and psychology, for essentially their entire lives and be able to share their insights in one hour conversation. It's just such a cool thing that I'm so happy to do. If you enjoyed this conversation, you can share it on Instagram. It's a likely place. You can tag me at Align Podcast. You can tag Wendy at wendy.suzuki. And it's a great way to tell your friends if this is something that you want to share. And it's a great way to be supportive of the podcast. Also, reviews on iTunes are immensely supportive. That's amazing. I love reading all of those guys. And uh, lastly, if you have grabbed the Align Method book, thank you. And if you haven't, check that thing out. If you are interested in implementing these psychological tools into your life from the lens of movement. All right, that's it. That's all. Thank you all so much. Appreciate you. And uh, we'll talk next week. <laughs>